Sport, la cour. Bonjour à tous, veuillez vous asseoir. Hello everyone, please be seated. In Antoine Ponce et al. and Société d'investissement Riom Limited et al. For the appellants, Antoine Ponce et al., Audrey Bachter, Étienne Morin-Lévesque, Laurence Boudreau. For the respondents, Société d'investissement Riom Limité et al., Jérémy Thibault, Louis-P. Bélanger, and Samuel Nadeau. Ms. Bachter. Good morning. I'll be referring today principally uh, to our condensed book. Uh, I may also refer to the condensed book of the respondents. Today, the court is being asked to decide three questions two about remedies, and one about the duty to inform. First, does Quebec civil law permit disgorgement as a general remedy for breaches of the duty of good faith in the absence of a legal duty of loyalty? Second, is loss, if not, is loss of chance to negotiate compensable in Quebec civil law? And finally, what is the proper standard for the good faith duty to inform in management buyout negotiations, and was it breached in this case? Our position is that the courts below erred in imposing a wrong and unworkable standard of conduct on officers and directors in the context of buyout negotiations with shareholders and ordered a remedy that is unfounded in law. The trial judge held the appellants to a legal duty of loyalty that is owed only to the corporation and ordered disgorgement. The Court of Appeal correctly held that they were not held to such a duty but held that they breached the good faith duty to inform and upheld the disgorgement award. In doing so, we say the Court of Appeal committed two legal errors. Though recognizing that the duty owed was a good faith duty to inform, it imposed substantively the same duty of loyalty as the trial judge, and by maintaining the disgorgement award without any analysis whatsoever, the Court of Appeal simply failed to think through the difference from a remedies perspective of a breach of a legal duty of loyalty and a breach of the duty of good faith. Did, did the Court of Appeal actually uh, say it, its remedy was disgorgement or that uh, on a compensatory damages basis the award would be the same as if there had been disgorgement? I think the Court clearly just upheld the trial judge's award of disgorgement and we see it at paragraph 107 where the Court of Appeal says Allons de ces faits, the, ju the judge could have con concluded that en achetant les, 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 les intérêts de Réaume et in purchasing the entrance, interests of Rome in Rio, they made a profit. In paragraph one, the last page of the tab, the court says, the, le profit résulte largement de la vie. The profit largely results from the lack of good faith towards Rio and Bonne. Profit results from the breach. There's no finding as to damages because no proof of damages was ever made. In fact, the strategy of the respondents was always that they didn't need to prove damages. And on this, I would ask you to take tab 17 of the compendium. 
where this position is made clear. There are questions being asked to Industrial Alliance's witness about what would they have done, and there is an objection raised on the basis that it's hypothetical on the first page. And we turn over and we see the argument as to why those questions are hypothetical is because the whole theory of the case over at page 164 of the compendium was that la mesure du dommage, c'est pas de démontrer ce qu'ils auraient pu. The measure of the damage is not to show what they could have obtained, but to show that from the moment there was a fault, how much, uh, by how much they enriched themselves. The success or not is the result of the damages. And then... C'est pas de démontrer ce que Monsieur Pépin... It's not to show what Mr. Pépin would have gotten, it's to show how much they were enriched. ...of a legal duty of loyalty. So with the theory of the case, and I think we're at this stage, we're all agreed on this, that the initial theory of the case and the one adopted as the, the grounds of, of finding a duty of loyalty has been set aside by the Court of Appeal. And so the, the theory of the case predicated on restitution of profits or restitution of prestations is not going to work as the trial judge thought it was work. But let's go back to Justice Rowe's question. You cited a paragraph in the section of the judgment of the Court of Appeal on causation. Mm -hmm. But if you go into the section dealing with damages, isn't it fairer to say that, or is it perhaps not fairer to say that we were looking at a restitution-like claim, but that was to be calculated on the basis of the usual basis for determining damages, what damage or what loss was caused by the fault, and as a result, we're not necessarily in the mode of restitution, we're in the mode of, of simple calculation of damages. Now, your point might be remain valid. They didn't prove their damages. I think I understand that to be your point. They didn't prove it because there's restitution of prestations can't be used. There's no duty of loyalty here. They didn't prove it because restitution of profits isn't available either. They, they, they can't ask for nullity, or they seem not to want to ask for nullity. I, we can understand why. They want to profit from that quittance in the transactions. And so they're left with claiming damages, and they didn't make it out. Isn't that also what you're arguing in answer to Justice Rowe? That is what I'm arguing. They're, they're left with claiming damages, and they never claimed damages. They claimed restitution. They never tried to prove damages. There is no proof of damages. In fact, uh, the respondent's expert acknowledged that, uh, and this is at uh, tab 18 of the compendium, um, over after the blue, sorry, after the second page. <clears throat> uh, it's page 191 of the condensed book, that if the primary hypothesis wasn't valid, then in order to quantify damages, the GV, the, a fair market value analysis would have to be done. So there was a way to quantify damages, if any, here, and it was to do a fair market value analysis of the companies, which is what the respondents' experts did, except that the appellants' expert disagreed with the way it w in which they went about it. So this is not a case where damages are impossible to quantify or where the interest is other than economic in nature, the situations referred to in Atlantic Lottery. This is a case where a party makes a deliberate decision that they're better off showing profit, showing gain, than they are showing loss because 
our position is that in this case, the numbers for loss don't work in their favor. And on that, I would just ask you to turn to the first pad. Well, before you get there, yeah. let's, let's, let's uh, at, the, at the very least see it coming, because you, addre you address it in your factum. And one of the arguments made by your friends, and m many of them are, are of a different order, speaking to duties of loyalty that, that I understand you disagree with, but one of their arguments is that Baxter mm -hmm. um, uh, is useful here because the concealment that your clients are accused of, mm -hmm. the lies that your clients are accused of, precluded the victims from making proper evaluation. So Baxter says, well, in that circumstance, there's a kind of a presumption that we're going to use the, the profit measure. And then it fell to your clients mm -hmm. to bring contrary proof. What, what, so, so is that, is that a... I, I, with, with all due respect, I think that that's an improper reading of Baxter. Baxter is not a case about disgorgement. Baxter is a case about lost profits in a situation where there's a public issue price at the end of the day that all shareholders could have achieved. Here, it's a private transaction that is based on the qualities of the managers agreeing to stay on for five years, increase in value of the companies, etc. So Baxter, if you look at it, paragraph 90, it's, it's at tab uh, 20 of our compendium. And if you go to paragraph uh, 97 over at page 203, if the plaintiffs had refused to sell their shares, they would have been in the same position as all the other shareholders of the company. They would have been able to sell at 150, there's no doubt. And so at paragraphs 98, the trial judge concluded that they were entitled to damages. Damages is the remedy, and what's the appropriate measure of damages? Over at page 205, paragraph 104, I see no valid reason why the measure of the damages should not be the difference of 25 and 150, because we know they could have sold for 150, and we don't put the burden on them to prove that they wouldn't have sold sooner. That's a completely different case from saying we have no proof as to what they could have obtained because they deliberately chose not to make that proof. So I'm, I'm thinking, oh, pardon me. Okay. I'm thinking of paragraph 111 of Justice Rothman's opinion, and it sounds to me, uh, to listen to you carefully, that you're saying it's a completely different case because the proof here is different. That even if there were to be a presumption, the proof, unlike Justice Rothman's case, the proof is, is so are you not sort of accepting the logic, you're sort of saying, even if the logic of Baxter applies and allows for the presumption, it's no good, in which case that's a different point of saying I, the presumption doesn't apply. I guess I'm the presumption is, sorry, excuse me, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but the presumption applies based on the bad faith and concealment that precluded proper proof in the ordinary way. But the, the the proof that's precluded in Baxter is the moment at which they would have sold. It's not the ultimate price at which they could have sold, right? It's not a presumption that the highest possible price, it's, it's like if an athlete is injured and can't prove how much they would have, can't prove what their career would have been, they don't get the salary of the highest paid player in the league. They have to prove the reasonable loss on a balance of probabilities. It's not a presumption to get the highest possible.
It's, it's, in, it's here where we say we're not going to put the burden on them to prove that they would have sold sooner, but at the end of the day, the presumption only goes so far. It's not a presumption that you access the highest price. You have to show what you would have actually... But who has to show? Who has the to plaintiffs. Show? It's their burden of proof. It's the burden of proof on the plaintiffs is to show fault, causation, and damages. And to the extent that there was a burden on the defendants, <clears> they met it because Industrial Alliance testified that it would not have paid the same price to the shareholders and that half of the value of the transaction is the value of the managers and that the price that they paid is based on the respond the appellant's commitment to stay and run the company for five years. So that's obviously not a price that the shareholders can achieve because they're not the ones staying on to run the company for five years. They're not the ones who know how to make the companies make money. The managers are. Isn't, doesn't Baxter, Ms. Uh, Ms. Bachter, really rely on a, a broader proposition than you stated? It really, uh, in paragraph 105, Justice Rothman cites Rainbow Industrial Cater as Justice Savinga's decision, and it's really the broader proposition, uh, which he draws on the common law because of the absence of the civil law speaking to this issue, is the, is the, the court uh, being in a position of speculating and then placing the risk of non-persuasion on one party or the other. So um, isn't that the broader proposition uh, that Baxter relies on? And in this situation, the risk of non-persuasion would uh, would would lie would lie with on the defendant uh, because uh, because of the um, the the uh, the lie the fault the fact that there is some injury it's a question of quantifying uh, it and then the um, profits uh, serve as a proxy in a sense so isn't that the reasoning the sort of the deeper moral principle that Baxter sort of relies on I don't think Baxter goes so far as to reversing a burden of proof. I think that the burdens of proof are a fundamental part of, of actions in civil liability, and I don't think there's, we can read anything in Baxter that goes so far as, as reversing a burden of proof. I wonder, I wonder if, um, and I realize it's a common law case, sort mm -hmm. of, um, I wonder if Callow is instructive here. In paragraph 116, the court said this in Callow, even, where, even if I were to conclude that the trial judge did not make an explicit finding, as to whether Callow lost an opportunity, it may be presumed as a matter of law that it did, since it was Baycrest's own dishonesty that now precludes Callow from conclusively proving what would have happened if Baycrest had been honest. Now, is that something we just confined to the common law box, or is that something that's applicable? In Callow, the finding was that it was, it was, reasonable, it was a reasonable finding that they would have obtained a contract of the same value. That was the finding at the end of the day in Callow. Callow actually doesn't displace the measure of damages in contractual law, which is expectation damages. What could the actual party have expected to obtain? And in Callow, we're talking about snow removal contracts. It's a reasonable presumption to say you'll replace one snow removal contract with another. Here, it's it's a completely other thing. And I I think I think maybe part of the <laughs> part of the hiccup here is that there's a there's a perception out there that the um, that IA paid double what the appellants paid, and that, you know, that there's something untoward here that's happening and that the, the profits obtained couldn't just be based on increased value of the company and the value of, of, the respondent, of the appellants. And I would ask you to take tab 18, the first page of the condensed book, because the respondents really uh, perpetuate this misperception at paragraph 21 in their factum that there's this gross disparity that couldn't be explained by other, anything other than bad faith. In fact, 
you know, we know the damage, the disgorgement award is actually $11 million. Why? Because the value of the transaction for the appellants is deemed to be $72 million, and the value of the transaction for the respondents is deemed to be $60 million, once you take into account all of the many millions and millions of dollars that they owed under the Entente. So we're talking here about a difference of under 20%, where you have the testimony of IA saying the explanation for the increase in value is the shareholders dispute is over, the companies have increased in value, and the managers agree to stay on for five years. And I think the best proof that the price the appellants got is particular to them is that Mr. Ponce and Mr. Riopel each own an equivalent share of the companies. Mr. Riopel got 15 million and Mr. Ponce got 22.8 million because Mr. Ponce's consideration was 8 million in set compensation and 16 million in variable compensation based on his performance at the company over the next five years. So to the extent that there's a burden on the defendants to show that this is not a deal that the respondents could have gotten, they've satisfied it. It's now, obvious. Now you, 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 in your, what we used to call the prayer for relief, the order sought, you say the appellants seek an order allowing the appeal and dismissing the action would cost throughout. Mm -hmm. What you seem to be saying to us now is in the alternative, even if there is liability, the level of damages should be less? Or are you saying it's all or nothing? I'm saying when a party makes this, and I, I go back to the, the statements of this court in Atlantic Lottery, which is that... No, 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 but this is a question about the no, remedy you're seeking, not right. the basis upon we're, which you're seeking it. We, we're seeking a remedy to dismiss the appeal because the court doesn't have any evidence of damages by deliberate choice of the parties. And, you know, this court said in Atlantic Lottery, disgorgement's not a remedy that's available just because a party doesn't want to make proof of damages. It's a remedy that's available when you can't make proof of damages or where economic measure isn't the real thing at stake. But at, you know, at paragraph, uh, we have this at tab, um, tab six of our compendium. Paragraph 61, <clears throat> disgorgement for breach of contract is exceptional relief. It's not available from the, for, at the plaintiff's selection to obviate matters of proof. And there's nothing exceptional about the breach of contract the plaintiffs allege. In addition, at paragraph 59, which is just at, at page 71 of the book, where the argument is that the quantum of loss is equal to the gain, but the plaintiff would simply rather pursue disgorgement, a gain-based remedy is not appropriate. Let's say we think you're right on that. Let's say there's no disgorgement remedy. Let, we're back at Justice Rowe's question, which is we've got a damage remedy that we need to calculate. And even Justice Rothman in Baxter, you'd, you'd agree that he was making a damage finding, right? Yes. But look at 111. He says he makes allusion to restitution because he was trying to figure out a number. And, well, and so, so even if one were to accept, and you make compelling arguments, that in the absence of what I, I guess a common law person would call a fiduciary duty and a civilian might say a category of duties of loyalty that are founded upon acting selflessly, which not, it's not here, uh, disgorgement's not available, restitution of prestations wasn't really asked for or doesn't appear to be asked for, we'll, we'll have to speak to your colleagues about that. 
So we're, 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 maybe we're with you on it's got to be damages. But the Baxter idea is, 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 is four square within that. We don't need to look at Atlantic Lottery. We've got, we've got, we've got authority. You, but you don't have proof of damages here. And it's because the parties deliberately chose not to make the proof because they don't like the numbers. And I think the message you would be sending if you accede to this approach is that you can essentially hedge your bets, and if you turn out to be wrong, the court's just going to fix it at the end of the day. And I don't think that that's the way the civil liability system should work. You're not supposed to be able to, you know, gain the system such that because you're, the, the number on damages is maybe not worth your while to pursue, you're just going to seek Gaming profits. the system, gaming the system, that's Atlantic Lottery for sure. <laughs> but, but, uh, no, but no, it's, it's not turning civil liability on its head. Justice Rothman spoke of a presumption. Sounds to me like you're kind of trying to rebut the presumption, which is fair game, but, I mean, but it is a presumption. And, 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 but it, it, it's not and a it's presumption. presumption. Sorry, sorry. sorry. That's, that, that becomes necessary. The misconduct alleged of your clients. But the, 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 the presumption only applies insofar as the misconduct would make it impossible to know something. Here, there they said the misconduct makes it impossible to know when they would have sold, and so we won't put the burden on them. Here, there's an admission by the experts that it's not impossible. It's just the way to do it is with a fair market value, and they chose not to do it. So we're not in a situation where impossibility triggers a presumption. We're in a situation where we don't want to live with the numbers, and that's a completely different, it's a completely but different thing. But you're thing. taking, I mean, it's up to you and, and your instructions from your client, and you may figure I'm going to play my best card and, and, and that's it, but I think it's a risky proposition to say 11.8 uh, is not a good number, therefore the number is zero. Maybe the number is something between 11.8 and zero, but well, you're not telling us that. I mean, at that point, the only solution is to send it back and order a fair market valuation. That's the only solution. Otherwise, you're, you're <laughs> I mean, on what basis are you going to, we know that they couldn't have gotten the deal that our clients got. That is proven to the extent that we had that burden to prove. So arbitrating a number between zero and 11.8, you know, we're gonna risk devolving into what courts often refer to as palm tree justice, and that's not what we want. We want a rigorous system of civil liability that, that places burdens on parties to establish damages and to establish quantum of damages and not to be able to make elections because they don't wanna live with the fact that it's gonna be less I've, than I've been than told the there are no palm trees in Quebec. <laughs> <laughs> but. I, you know, I, I, I think this is, you know, this is a fundamentally important point because it's about, it's, it is about the basis of civil liability, fault, causation, damage. Damages is about proving what you would have obtained. And the, the courts, yes, they can, when there's conflicting evidence about damages, need to arbitrate between numbers, but they can't simply just pick a number in the air between zero and gain and call it loss. That's, I think, exactly what Atlantic Lottery says you can't do, and I certainly don't think that Justice Rothman is advocating for that in, in Baxter. So, <clears throat> I, before I, I, I kind of move on a little bit more to the substance of our, of our arguments on, um, on um, disgorgement, I just want to say a word about terminology because you know, and unfortunately in Quebec we use the word duty of loyalty to refer to what are two uh, fundamentally different things. Uh, the what resembles fiduciary duties in the common law and uh, the duty of loyalty, which is part of the suite of contractual and extra contractual obligations of good faith. 
um, stemming from Articles 6, 7, and 1375. So we're going to use the term duty to act faithfully, as this court did in Callow, um, to refer to the good faith duty and the, the true duty of loyalty, the duty to act in someone else's interests as the duty of loyalty. Um, so whatever comes out of this case, please help us <laughs> with this because it creates a lot of confusion in the, uh, in the doctrine and the jurisprudence to use two words to refer to duties that are not different intensities of the same duty, they are duties of a fundamentally different kind. Um, this court explained that in, uh, in Resolute, which we have at tab 11 of our compendium, you know, duties of loyalty is the difference between exercising a power with respect to another and exercising a right in one's own interest. Loyalty is selflessness, good faith is not. So why is it that disgorgement in civil law is so exceptional? Well, it's because the fundamental principles of civil liability are based on corrective justice. Um, and I would ask you to turn to tab four of the compendium, which is uh, from the excerpt from Baudouin. The first paragraph explains, <clears throat> damages are accorded uh, ones that have a compensatory function need to take into account the uh, effective loss or the lost gains uh, and it should be evaluated uh, based on the reparation that is due and not the sanctioning reprehensible behavior or the perpetrator. Um, this principle has been uh, sanctioned by the court. At, over at tab 5, Marianique Grégoire, uh, if you turn over to uh, page 54 of the of the book, 224 of the of the original book. It's the last page in the in the tab. She says this condition, la preuve du préjudice est toujours nécessaire. The proof of harm is always necessary. Un manquement à l'obligation d'information sur a breach of the duty to inform in good faith, but that proof is not sufficient. There needs to have been harm. Just because we're talking about a breach of the duty of good faith. <clears throat> the duty of loyalty is codified in four specific instances in the code, directors, administrators of the property of another, mandate, and employment. Punitive damages are also specifically provided for in civil law. Unlike in common law, they're not generally available. The code privileges corrective justice to the point where the codifiers rejected a proposal to enact punitive damages as a general remedy for gross or intentional fault and confined punitive damages to specific instances, Quebec Charter, CPA, certain cases involving trees, and that reflects a very conscious decision on the part of the codifiers to privilege corrective justice and to admit of exceptions in specific instances. It's very similar to the codifiers' decision to, to privilege um, the binding force of contracts and to admit of exceptions in very specific instances, like lesion, like abusive clauses. The baseline principle is corrective justice, and where there are exceptions, they are specific. And in the code, they are specific to those relationships that involve a true legal duty of loyalty. And we submit that Kuet Long, which is the main case at the heart of all of this controversy as to whether the, the remedy uh, extends to just any breach of the duty of good faith, does nothing more than confirm these basic principles. It's at tab 13 of our compendium. Kuit Long is a case about an employee who, tra who does trades in client accounts uh, unbeknownst to the bank, uh, makes a secret profit, um, and the question is, even though the bank suffers no loss, can the employee be held to disgorgement? 
We have to place ourselves back in 1989. This is pre-codification. It's before the duty of loyalty was specifically codified in the Civil Code at Article 2088 for employees. And the Justice Gontier has to decide whether the remedy of disgorgement flowing from the duties that apply in the contract of mandate um, and, uh, and administration of property or, or like situations applies uh, to employees. And he says that it does, but not because of good, not because of a more general principle about good faith, but because, and at pa paragraph 135, the respondent is acting in a representative capacity for the appellant carrying on its business. He says, he looks, his starting point is Article 1713 of the Civil Code of Lower Canada, which is now 2184, which is the provision on rendering of account. This obligation, obviously applicable to this contract, attaches to the underlying function and relationship of the parties to the contract. Over at uh, paragraph, sorry, page 138 at the top of the condensed book. Let's, can, let's, uh, let's take, uh, take you at your word that duty of loyalties are confined to defined circumstances. Mm. This is not an instance of administration of property of another. While the presidents are employees of the company, they're not employees of the shareholders. Mm -hmm. um, there's no obvious mandate here. What do you make of the relationship between the parties in the Entente des Présidents. <clears throat> and to what extent does that relationship and the climat de confiance that was described between the parties mm -hmm. help us understand the source of the finding of fault by the Court of Appeal and so the consequences uh, for determining damages, because it, it, y your argument about disgorgement doesn't end the day. That's why we started with, mm -hmm. as you, well, you started us off on, on damages. That was quite fair. So what does the Entente des Présidents say, say to you? So the Entente des Présidents, the entire thing is reproduced in, in the trial judgment. So we, we would have the entire contents of the Entente at tab three of our condensed book, beginning at page, the top, page 29. So the Entente des Présidents, is an incentive-based remuneration agreement. It's essentially, and, and my colleagues have put an extract of Mr. Réaume's testimony in their condensed book, which says it was intended to motivate the, the appellants to do their job, to get better results for the company. We come back to the basic principle that directors and officers owe a, their duties to the corporation. That includes the duty to maximize corporate value. But this isn't an agreement between M Monsieur Ponce and Monsieur yeah. Riopel and la compagnie. C'est entre. It's mal leur nom ici. Je me permets de le dire. They're not acting as employees. The presidents who are not acting as employees. Slightly unusual in a <clears throat> in a co compensation agreement and an incentive agreement, typically it's of course the corporation that says, well, we'll give you a bonus if you work really hard. Here it seems to be different. And interestingly, one of the companies, uh, Excellence, 9% of the shareholders are not party of, to this agreement. So, I mean, this is a, this is a, this is a strange agreement. That, so w w how does that, it, it seems to me that it, it, it's relevant to determining the it, relationship between the parties here. So, 
I agree with you that it is a bit of a, a strange agreement in the sense of, of who the parties are, but the, an agreement, a remuneration agreement cannot, so going back to my point that directors owe duties to the corporation, including to maximize corporate value, it's not the only duty they owe, it's one duty amongst many that they have to balance, that's what the court said in Wise and BCE. So you could not, by way of a, an incentive agreement, even with a shareholder directly, make it such that the director owes a specific duty which conflicts with his duties, the duties that he may owe to the corporation. This is nothing more than, as Mr. Rayom testifying, motivating them to do their job. And on the point that you raise about the fact that it's with Monsieur uh, Bon and uh, Rayom personally, I think that just shows the extent to which the Entente was never the basis of this action because those are not even the parties who sued. <laughs> the parties who sued are the parties to the Bon and Rayon buyout transactions. Yeah, but uh, 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 this, isn't it necessary that the contract was with uh, Rayon and Bon because of the option d'achat et droit de premier refus? Huh? I mean, I mean, because that's talking about who owns the shares and the sale of the shares. Now, you could have had, this could have been structured as two separate transactions, one relating to augmented compensation and a, and a separate contract relating to the potential buyout of shares. But they combined them in one. And when they combined them in one, it had to be between Réaume and Bonne and Réopel and Pense because it, it talked about the sale of shares. And, and the company can't sell its own shares. It's, it's the shareholders who right. sell the shares. That may be, but at the end of the day, what the, what the finding is at the, uh, in the courts below is that the duty to maximize corporate value, which is part of their job, becomes a duty to maximize shareholder sale price in the context of a transaction with oneself. That just, it doesn't work. That's it, a bit, I, I think that's a bit unfair. And, and to follow on Justice Rose's comment, the, by fixing on the identity of the shareholders here, the, the duty of good faith in the execution of the Entente des Présidents takes plainer focus. And the Entente des Présidents, of course, now you'll correct me if I'm wrong, that during the period of the pre-contractual negotiations leading up to the Transaction Réaume and the Transaction Bonne was extant, was still applicable. Indeed. So your clients allegedly lied and hid information from their co-contractants as they were executing this contract in a manner that doesn't look like they were maximizing any interest that the, the, the shareholders might have had. Um, come hell or high water, the right of first refusal and the option d'achat. So the argument is that Justice Rancourt takes up. And he says, well, when you read this, there's not a lot of obligations imposed upon Riopel and, and uh, Ponce, but there's plain, it's not a gift, this contract, they didn't just, it wasn't a gift. They were already <coughs> presidents. So it was, there's implicit duties here, uh, confirmed by the character of the obligations in the option d'achat that personalizes it to the shareholders. They didn't max, when they lied, uh, when they hid information, they weren't maximizing uh, 
the capital value of that for the benefit of the shareholders, breach. There's, there's actually no, there's no correlation. I mean, we'll get to the, the duty to inform and, and what you characterize as, as, as lies, um, and I'll, I'll address that. But no, there I is, said allege. I did say allege. Yeah, lies. there's, there's, at no point in time is there any indication that are that the directors didn't maximize. Cor there's no, they didn't not that they didn't maximize corporate value. The, if you deduct the amounts owed under the Entente, the price that our clients paid for the shares is higher than what anyone else was offering. At the end of the day, the value of the transaction is 60 million, as opposed to 72 what IA paid. No one else was making such an offer. They, they didn't drive down the price. They actually paid more. In the evidence, it's that Mr. Bohm approached Blue Cross and said, how much would you give me for my shares? And Blue Cross said, eight or nine million gross. Our clients paid 10.1 million net, which is almost double. So there's no basis on which to conclude that our clients didn't fulfill their duties to maximize the value of the corporations. Indeed, the Entente de Président is based on a Blue Cross offer price in 2001 of 19.5 million. And at the end of the day, we see they increased the corporate value by almost threefold. <laughs> So there's no suggest there is no there's no I don't think any basis to say that they didn't do their job in maximizing the value of the corporation. What they didn't do is negotiate with and against themselves, what about, which is a duty that they don't have. Um, you'll you'll come to the point about about whether your clients lied, because mm -hmm. I want to hear about that. But I'm wondering whether the right of first refusal in the Entente could be said to generate an obligation to inform the shareholders of the existence of third parties, or is that too remote? Well, I mean, the, the, right of, you know, the right of first refusal doesn't obviate the fundamental obligation that exists on third parties under the buy framework to look after their own affairs. If what their shareholders wanted was a bidding war in the marketplace and to sit back and choose what they deemed, for whatever reason, to be the best offer, there was nothing prevented them from, from doing that, and there's no burden on our party, on our clients, to provoke that for them. Here you have a situation in which, and I'll, you know, I, I think it's perhaps a, a good time to move on uh, to the duty of. Ms. Uh, Ms. Bachter, are you answering Justice Brown's yeah. question? Because he, there may have been, may or may not have been a fault in the pre-extra contractual fault mm -hmm. in the pre-contractual negotiations when you fix on the transaction réom in gestation and the transaction bone, but Justice Brown's question is, in, within the four corners of the Entente des Présidents, in the execution, not, not, not in the, la formation des autres contrats, mais dans l'exécution de, de l'Entente des Présidents. In the execution. Filled by the presence of the right of first refusal. But there's no, they didn't, they didn't block an offer that the shareholders could have accepted. There was no offer made to the shareholders that they somehow blocked that would have artificial that would have inflated the price that they had to pay. Well, well, there's a finding at paragraph 486 of the trial judgment. The defendants avaient intérêt à cacher intérêt. Defendants had an interest in in hiding this from the shareholders. Details about the the duty to inform. I think because the courts below approach this as being a duty of loyalty, they essentially make 
no distinction between they, they don't impose any duties on the shareholders it's only duties imposed on the buyers and they make no distinction between different types of information and thresholds of information in in 2005 when ia approaches the appellants it's it's a vague expression of interest it's not defined in any way and it's simply uh, it, as you know in the uh, in the entente confidentialité it basically says you know Let's explore possibilities. It's at tab 31 of our, uh, of our book. Let's explore um, the possibility of doing business together. Eventuelle entente, partenariat, et ou tout autre, et ou tout autre. So there is no offer. There's a vague expression of interest here. And the discussions are that IA would be interested. Ce qui était caché par les défendants. Which the defendants had. Point. And IA is only interested if it's going to involve the managers because they need the managers. They're the ones who know how to make the company make money. The, the, misdeed, they, the misdeed 449 of the trial judgment. De toute évidence, Ponce ne lui... Clearly, Ponce did not tell the truth. The defendants clearly committed a fault by secretly negotiating with IA as they were negotiating the and bone transactions. Justice Brown's question, yeah. if we focus on the execution of the Entente des Présidents mm -hmm. and not whether there was a correlative duty to inform oneself in the pre-contractual phase or whether there was a firm offer, the fact that there was secret negotiations and a lie around it would be the basis, according to this, the question yeah. that was asked you, the basis for a violation of the contract as opposed to an extra contractual fault. And I think because the courts below applied the duty of loyalty, it allowed them to take a lot of shortcuts in analyzing the proof in terms of lumping the two transactions together as being one and not situating any of this in, in precise moments in time. So when the, there are no parallel negotiations, the entente de confidentialité, these are not negotiations. This is, we have an interest, send us some information. And following the sending of the information, they heard nothing. The trail went cold. And Mr. Sauvageau testified, and you have uh, the testimony at, at tab 32, just after the Entente. He says, Dans un premier temps, on avait... First of all, we had decided not to look at the situation because it seemed too complicated. Dispute with the, between the shareholders, the trail goes cold because they're not interested at this time. And so in February, when the appellants are negotiating first with Mr. Réom, there are very quick negotiations. There are no parallel negotiations. The trail has gone completely cold. IA is not interested. So a deal is concluded with Mr. Réom in February. And it's not until after that that our clients reach out to IA to see if they're interested in being a financing partner. And everybody knows it's, it's not contested that both of the respondents know that our clients need financing. They don't have $23 million in their pockets. They're talking to all kinds of people out there in the market for financing. And all of the valuations or offers or whatever you might call them that they get after they have a deal with Réon are in the context of their search for financing. So the duty to inform would have the effect of saying that even after you have a deal, anything that you obtain during your own search for financing, whether it's higher, lower, whatever, you have a duty to constantly go back and renegotiate on the basis of that information. 
I just think that that's unrealistic and not what the duty of, of good faith requires. I've pleaded and lost a case on precisely that point. So, so is, it, is it your position that the finding of a lie is a palpable and overriding error, or is it that the lie has no juridical significance in this case? Well, I think it's, I mean, I think it's both, but in terms of the lie, we have to situate what is alleged to be the lie again in time. It's, it's according to the trial judgments, it's Mr. Bone asks Mr. Ponce in August, right? So we're long after there's a deal with Réaumur in August and it's negotiations with Mr. Bone. And what's the status quo in August? Well, as I said, the appellants were out there searching for financing. They approached IA and IA went to, Mr. Pepin went to the board of directors and the board of directors says in an extract of a resolution which you have at tab 34, he says, des questions, the, this is the board. Des questions était de savoir si la One of the issues is to determine if the company should intervene within these shareholder conflicts or should wait for these issues to be resolved. They decided not to associate with this conflict have to wait and see what happens. And Mr. Pepin testified this about this. It's at tab 17 I, of our... I guess mm -hmm. I'm just having... I'm coming back to the question that Justice Jamal just asked you. Yeah. I'm having trouble because you're putting the testimony to us, right. the transcript, the evidence. Um, are, are you asking us to make new findings of fact, <clears throat> to reweigh it, to do the trial judges? job or are you saying the trial judge was wrong in the finding of fact palpable and overriding error or that finding of fact doesn't take doesn't do the legal job he said it did i think it yeah. doesn't help to ask us to interpret the evidence no i, I that's a fair enough but I, I want i want the court to understand the basis of my answer which is that when mr ponce says ia is not interested in august the status quo is that the board has said ia is passing for now and so that's, I say that the, the, the reason why the facts get interpreted as they do in the courts below all snowballs from the legal error of the duty of loyalty in which these fine distinctions of moments in time maybe don't matter. But when we're applying a duty of good faith, which is based on the nature of information, whether it's determinative, where the analysis is in concreto with respect to the facts of each case, they matter. And so I think that the legal error at the source of all of this is to say, well, who cares? Potato, potato, it's the duty of loyalty. They have to disclose everything at all time, which is essentially, you know, the, the, the trial judge said, uh, specifically with respect to criteria three of buy, which is, is it impossible to obtain information oneself, said, even supposing they could have gone out and gotten all of these same offers themselves, it doesn't matter because the duty of loyalty would require them to disclose everything. And from a buy perspective, a duty to inform perspective, it matters a whole great deal because that's the essence of the corollary duty to inform oneself. So if, if, if I could just... Okay, yeah, but then... Yeah, um, I on that. So the, okay. I would say that the, the error about the lie stems from a legal error. If we needed to call it a palpable and overriding error, we could, but I, don't, I just think it stems from a legal error. And at the end of the day, it's not causal of anything anyway because IA is not interested. Okay, so maybe that's your answer to the question I'm about to ask, is we still have a clear finding of intentional dishonesty. And what do we do with that? And it sounds like the answer is, yeah, but it's causal of nothing. Well, the answer to that is, civil liability is not about faults in the air. Civil liability is about faults that cause damage. 
And it's, it's not, uh, you know, I think if once the framework is properly established and, you know, when a court applies a wrong standard, the court this court has a duty to set the right standard, a workable standard for management buyout negotiations in which there are duties to the corporation and we're, able, we're allowed to negotiate, and then it has to apply those standards to the facts. So we're not I, asking you to redo the findings of fact, we're asking you to apply the right standard to the facts okay. and to the moments in time in which things happened. But I'm just, sorry, of course, I'm a humble common lawyer, so when it comes to the civil law, I'm, I'm trying to link piece to piece to piece here. So I just want to take it back. Are you conceding that there was a fault here? I don't concede there was a fault on a proper application of the duty to inform when you consider that the... So, so let me then take you back to Justice Jamal's question is, did the judge make a palpable and overriding error in finding dishonesty? I think, I think the, the finding of dishonesty is a legal conclusion about the breach of the duty of good faith. And I think that conclusion is wrong. So which duty of good faith are you talking about? Because you keep moving the ball. I say the, that the full of respect. Justice Kazir, it's just, yeah. I would have thought that the honesty would lead to the conclusion of a breach of duty of loyalty. The dishonesty would lead to the breach of duty of loyalty, not that the breach of duty of loyalty would lead to a finding of dishonesty. Well, I, I mean, what we're talking about is a breach of the duty to inform here. And I don't, I think if you, if the facts are properly, if a standard is properly applied to the facts at the time in which there's no contest in terms of what the timing of all of these events was, if that is, if there's a rigorous approach applied, which the duty to inform requires, I don't think that it's, there is a finding of fault to be made here. So I'm going to ask you, which duty to inform are you speaking of? Because I can't, sometimes you're talking about, and you, you explain this in your factum, I think, you, I think you get the law right, at least as I understand it in your factum. In the pre-contractual negotiation phase, mm -hmm. there is an extra contractual duty of good faith to which attaches, in some circumstances, a duty to inform. That's one duty to inform. In the Entente des Présidents, in the execution of the Entente des Présidents, there is a duty to execute that in good faith to which attaches uh, a duty to inform. So when you say there's no violation, that this lie is irrelevant because there's no violation of a duty to inform, which duty to inform are you talking about? I think they're, they're one in the same standard. Buy is actually a contractual case, not a pre-contractual case. So the duty to inform from buy applies in, to the execution of contracts as it does to the pre-contractual stage. It's the same duty. It's, it's the same duty, but they're different transactions. You, you, you'd agree to, with that. Mm -hmm. And one is la faute dans la formation du contrat, mm -hmm. and one is la faute dans l'exécution d'un autre contrat. So we allege that we are in the formation d'un contrat ici. We, don't, we say that our position is that the Entente Président doesn't govern the buyout negotiations at issue. But even if it does, the standard is not higher or different. It's the same framework. And the Entente des Présidents does not obviate. When, when the respondents make a conscious decision to negotiate with the appellants, they cannot expect the appellants to to negotiate with a duty of loyalty. That's antithetical to commercial negotiations. But is, not, is it not a, a possible line of analysis to say that in looking at the duty to inform to the extent that it exists and what its extent is is an interesting question, 
in the formation of the sale contract for the shares, one can properly have regard to the uh, buyout provisions in the Entente Présidentielle to give color or assist in uh, ascertaining the extent of the duty to inform. In other words, uh, in one line of analysis is to say that the, uh, is, is to view, as Justice Cassera said, the execution of the Entente. The other one is to say, uh, let us look at the, the, the formation of the sale contract in which has to be placed in the context of how that sale contract came about, which was framed by the Entente. So it's in, 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 I'm, perhaps I'm not being clear, but if you had two parties who were completely at arm's length, who had no prior dealings, perhaps the duty to inform would have a, a different extent. But the extent of the duty to inform arguably is informed by the relationship which is established in the Entente. So I don't dispute that, but I think that the relationship here is not different than the relationship that exists in management buyouts across the country. You have a situation where you have individuals with duties to the corporation to maximize corporate value who have access to certain information, who are in a position, a certain position, dealing with shareholders. So in that context, the shareholders cannot expect when they choose to sell to the managers for the duty to inform to be essentially a duty of loyalty transposed to negotiations. It, it goes back to the Stuhler decision, which is, which is cited in our authorities. It's like if you decide at the end of the day to sell your house to your real estate agent, well, you can no longer expect your real estate agent to advise you as to whether he himself is offering you the best price. There is a duty on everyone to take care of their own affairs. And if what the respondents wanted was a bidding war, they were absolutely free to go out and procure one. And, and in any event, there's absolutely no reason to believe that that bidding war wouldn't have ended up with our client's offer being the best, once you consider the many millions owed under the Entente. So, so to follow up on Justice Rowe's question, and you cite buy as, yeah. as, as giving content to these duties to inform, your colleagues say, les liens de confiance et le dol des appelants. The link of confidence and the deceit of the appellants annihilated the uh, duty to inform. Gontier said, when somebody's lying to you, your reciprocal obligation to inform yourself takes a hit. What do you say to that? Well, first of all, I say that the only thing that is characterized as a lie in this file is Ponce's answer to Bone when he would have asked, is I interested? And Ponce says no. And we say, applying the proper moment in time, it's not a lie, it's, it's true, they are not interested. All of the rest is, you know, get, considering the uncontested finding, which is that everyone knows they're searching for financing, there was never an ask please show us all your financing offers. And they said, we don't have any or we're not giving them to you. It's fully out in the open that they're in the market seeking financing. And what happens when one party calls Mr. Réaume, actually, La Capitale, and he forwards them on to the respondents because he says, I've already made a deal with them. He says, j'ai aucun intérêt à courir après 
I have no interest in chasing after anyone. They'll do what they want. A clear affirmation on Mr. Réaume's part that says, it's I've got my deal, I've got my deal. Sounds like we're back to the palpable and overriding error. The, but, but the, tr not. the trial judge says, um, after having recounted his view of the lie, he says 492 and 493, il est clair que Réaume It's clear that Réaume and Bone could have gotten a better price than the one that they had gotten if they had been aware of IA's interest. Furthermore, Ponce admitted to the trial that they would have gotten a better price if the four of them had been together. So, wait, is, that also, is that also mistaken? No, so I, I have two answers to that. First of all, I, I would disagree that we're not squarely in the framework of buy here, and that it's just findings of fact, because one of the other clear criteria of buy is that the information has to be determinative and you have to communicate to your co-contractant that that type of information is determinative to you. So when Mr. Réaume says, je n'ai aucun intérêt à... I have no interest in chasing after any other offers, do what you want. ...communicating that this information is actually not determinative for him. So it's not a palpable and overriding finding of fact. It's a wrong, it's a, it's a simply a failure to apply the second criteria of buy. And this, 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 to, your, to the second point of your question, which is the, they could have gotten more. Well, this is essentially what we call loss of chance. It's, it's a chance to negotiate a better deal. And Mr. Ponce's answer when he says, à quatre, on aurait pu chercher plus. They could have gotten more with the four of us. In the middle of an examination about the 40% plus value. And he's actually saying, we have no interest in blocking good transactions because we get 40% of every dollar. And the judge says, well, at quatre, est-ce que vous auriez pu chercher plus? And Could have you have gotten more with four of you? Gotten more money because the plus value would have gone up. If the shareholder dispute had been set aside, we would have benefited. He never says that the net price to the shareholders after you deduct the 25-odd million owed under the Entente would have been higher. He's saying he and, and Mr. Riappel would have been in a better position because the shareholder dispute is bringing the value of the company down I, I to everyone's said detriment. That, I thought you said the Entente des Présidents didn't extend to a buyout. You, aren't it's, you now saying that, it, well, it did because it would have given them a 40% boost above the say? It's, it's only relevant to understand the net price that was paid, right? Because the respondents have always tried to have it both ways. They've they, they, the reason why it was it to their advantage to negotiate with the appellants is because they could extract concessions under this big debt that they have under the Entente. So it's relevant to understanding that the net price paid is not 33. If you take the IA valuation, it's closer to 60. But it doesn't impose, it's not relevant to saying there's a duty of loyalty somehow to negotiate with and against yourself. So it, you know, it's, there's a set-off of amounts at the end of the day that gives rise to a price, but that's not, you know, that doesn't by implication mean that it imposes duties on the negotiations. It's it's two different things. So, at no point prior to the time in which Rayom, once the framework is properly applied, to the bare facts is found. We're not asking you to redo the facts. At no point prior to the Réaume transaction being agreed to in February or closing in September is there any offer from IA. That's clear, in, that's uncont it's uncontested. The first offers from IA happened in March of 2007. The Réaume deal has long closed and the Bone deal has been locked up since January 31st. The evidence from IA is that further to the board resolution, they were out and they only come back into the picture 
when they learn that there's a deal with Bone, and once again, the appellants need financing. So they come back into the picture as potential financiers. They end up financing the Bone transaction. And then a whole series of events happens whereby our clients try everything they can not to sell to IA, who's now trying to acquire the FSFTQ shares and the parties are in litigation. And at the end of the day, in settlement of litigation, first, first uh, Riappel and then Ponce eventually capitulate and they sell the shares to IA at what is about a 20% difference. So we submit that not only is there no fault, there's no causation. This is not a grand plan all along with parallel negotiations to sell to IA. It's actually the opposite. Our clients wanted to stay on and run the business and they sold at the end of the day due to factors which, because of the litigation, Mr. Ponce could not finance his right of first refusal over Mr. Riopol's shares. And there's no damage. There's no damage that's been proven because the respondents made a deliberate choice not to prove it. No. Time. Yes, I see the time. So we submit, in conclusion, <clears throat> that the trial judge approached this case through the wrong lens of the duty of loyalty and it creates a, a, a series of findings that are, that are almost irreparable. And the Court of Appeal by simply, although correcting the facial error by simply imposing the same duties, fails to think through the difference between the duty of loyalty and the good faith duty, both in terms of the standard of the duty to inform and the impact on damages and creates a precedent that is, from both a fault and a damages perspective, untethered to basic principles of Quebec civil law. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. La Cour va prendre la pause du matin, 15 minutes. The Court will take its morning break, 15 minutes. Please be seated, Mr. Thibault. Chief Justice, Justices, you will find a, our plan at tab one of our compendium. And I will also answer both uh, questions at issue. I will also leave some time to my colleague, Mr. Bélanger. Nobody should profit from their illicit actions. This is not uh, being questioned. It's at the heart of this case. So what are the types of bad faith? 
that are targeted by that principle. We will show that uh, the appellant's serious faults breached the rights of uh, the respondents. One of these faults question are you still sticking with the concept of the duty of loyalty? Answer, yes, it is an additional concept. We know that uh, the Court of Appeal stopped at the duty to inform. The judge also discussed other duties. Good faith, which must uh, be exercised loyally is uh, an integral part of all contracts. Question. Mr. Thibault, I'm over here. Um, Ms. Bokter mentioned that the notion of loyalty in the case at bar doesn't correspond to the fiduciary duty concept of common law and uh, the other concept of uh, duty to act faithfully in uh, civil law. So every time a debtor has to act loyally, uh, the person has to act in the interest of others. For example, if you're talking about a mandatory, that is a type of loyalty does n that does not apply in this particular case. So I would like to hear specifically what you think about this. You talk about the duty of loyalty at length and I wonder how how many of these concepts that includes or if you're just using it as a synonym for duty of good faith, duty of honesty. What do you have in mind exactly when you say duty of loyalty? Answer. The distinction that Ms. Bokter was saying was terminological. Duty to act faithfully versus duty of loyalty, which is the fiduciary codified duty of loyalty. If you look at the Quebec Civil Code, you can look at the definitions. If you look at 2146, the duty of loyalty is translated as duty to act faithfully. So that semantic distinction doesn't really have any consequences. In our case, the President's agreement was a sui generis contract and the Superior Court and Court of Appeal referred to that, which the appellants uh, agreed to on appeal. So we're at the limit of this duty as a mandatory, which is not necessarily fiduciary, but which is reflected in the mandate. Question. I want to sp don't want to speak on behalf of Ms. Bokter, but what I thought I understood was that it wasn't a distinction in terms of terminology, but in terms of concepts. And she argued that the concept of loyalty in most cases, including the cases she cited, uh, th this applies when debtors have simple powers and must act 
in the interest of another person. That is not the case here because, she argues, Mr. Ponce and Mr. Riopel could act in their own interests and therefore You're not arguing that the president's agreement was a, a mandate in the strict uh, sense of, of the term. Answer, no. Question. So that is the question here. Of course, there's an obligation of good faith, but is, do the words, do the word, does the word loyalty, does the concept of loyalty in the civil code really apply here? I don't want to get hung up uh, on details here, but we're dealing with a situation where Ponce and Riopel could act in their own interests. Answer, yes, they can act in their own interests, but that doesn't mean that they can act to the detriment of their co-contractors. I concede that it's not uh, the fiduciary duty of loyalty that applies here, but these actions that violate the President's agreement go against good faith and the duty of uh, information and the duty of loyalty as we understand it, which means they cannot intentionally harm co-contractors. Ms. Bochter also shifted uh, her analysis to the issue of pre-contractual negotiations. Of course, it was in order to avoid discussing the President's agreement. So I don't know if that answers your question. Question. I think her objective wasn't just to avoid discussing the President's agreement, but also to avoid the logic of restitution for damages. You could imagine that in this other type of duty of loyalty it would apply, but she argues that we're not in restitution and disgorgement. Answer. Uh. Yes, to come to restitution or disgorgement it is not limited to fiduciary ob obligations. In Puet, Justice Gontier did not uh, limit that obligation, that duty. It, the goal was to protect the principle of not uh, profiting from uh, illicit actions. So this uh, power of good faith is flexible, it's, it's wide in scope. And it uh, distinction, distinguishes between uh, the loss and the gains. When the proof uh, of quantum is unavailable, then you don't have to uh, establish uh, that specific proof. So restitution is not completely autonomous. It is not a remedy that you can choose. This was uh, mentioned in Atlantic in paragraph 27. It is a compensation 
that respects the moral basis of Quet. It is, has been part of a civil law for over 30 years related to the principle of good faith and equity. The appellant's approach, which proposes that uh, the fiduciary duty of loyalty be limited, is extremely restrictive. And it's all, this is already an exceptional remedy. Good faith gives you a wide and flexible legal power to find solutions to very specific case-by-case -case issues. Question. I don't understand why your clients didn't ask for the Bonne and Riom contracts to be annulled. There might be two explanations. Maybe one of them is that they can't get the shares back. That's the main reason. But isn't it true that they're also trying to take, uh, to, to profit from those releases? Because this is money that your clients may owe. Imagine, imagine if there was deceit in this uh, case and it vitiated the consent given by your clients. In that case, there would have been a very clear-cut solution here. But you go elsewhere. So I'm trying to understand why that is. Answer. Well, as uh, you said, the shares were sold to IA, and therefore they can't ask for the contracts to be voided. That is a classic case. You can't apply the remedy of restitution in uh, cases such as uh, this. And you can't benefit from the releases either, Justice, because what we're asking is the, for is the difference between the price that was paid and the profit that the appellants made. But respecting the 40-60 uh, formula laid out in the President's agreement, that formula was recognized by the trier fact. And all of the money owed to the President's was taken into account. We're not asking to benefit from that. We're just asking to reestablish the contractual balance and get a result that would have occurred if the four had worked together. We can't quantify any evidence because of the way the presidents behaved. Just like in Baxter, we can't have the respondents bear the burden of this risk of not knowing when the shares were sold, for how much and how. It would be impossible to do that. We can't rewrite history. They hide, they hid rather, that uh, uh, interest on behalf of IA. And just like in Baxter, the solution is to apply the restitution of profits and only the 
portion of that uh, should apply according to the president's agreement 4060 question but Baxter is not exactly the application of uh, the restitution of profits the judge talks about that in 1611 I believe I, I'm asking you answer what Justice Rothman does in Baxter is that he awards the difference between the sales price and the purchase price so it's that difference between those two prices that he attributes to the appellant and he applies the remedy of restitution on 1611 of the code among other things because the restitution is for compensatory damages and the reason is because the price cannot the exact price cannot be established because of the fault committed by the appellants there isn't very much jurisprudence on this issue because it's an exceptional remedy there are a few cases in Quebec Baxter Uniselect and just like in Uniselect the amount of the profits was awarded because the profits were gained by someone who had committed a fault so it was a very specific situation the appellant benefited from the synergy that the acquisition uh, led to and as you know the debtor in that case chose not to respect the clause started a new business and obtained profit as a result and so in that kind of situation the court decided to apply the remedy of restitution up until the end of the clause my colleague Justice Jamal noted that Justice Rothman relied on rainbow industrial caterers a decision of, of this court from the common law where it is said because the principle of restitio in integrum for the evaluation of damages after harm is recognized in both traditions uh, that that can be relied upon because the jurisprudence in Quebec is limited that could be relied upon the principle of restitution as I said earlier is a method of quantifying things essentially and when the traditional remedies are unavailable uh, that can be used what the judge did in this case is imagine if everyone had gone back to their original position and then applied the the entente des présidents and he calculated what would have happened if that entente had been respected if you look at what Ju Justice Gontier did in Quet essentially the duty of loyalty uh, hadn't been codified at the time and so the judge looked for a legal solution to this very exceptional situation Quet was really an exceptional situation the bank 
didn't actually have any harm other than the fact that the employee acted uh, inappropriately. And they applied the principle that no one should benefit from their own wrongdoing. And that is what led to the uh, reimbursement of ill-gotten gains by Mr. Quet to the bank. But unlike in Quet, and unlike in uh, Article 20, 2088 of the code, your clients are not the company, uh, no, as the bank was in the other case. Mr. Ponce and Mr. Riappel were not employees, if we're looking at it through the lens of the Entente des Présidents. Um, despite the fact that they have the title president, they're not strictly speaking presidents. They deal directly with shareholders. So it's not exactly analogous to Quet. The duties are not analogous. No, it's not exactly analogous to Quet, but as I said, every case is unique. And if you look at the Entente des Présidents, which I said earlier is a sui generis contract, it's not only a remuneration agreement. If you look at the Entente des Présidents, its goal is uh, profit sharing. And the respondents really place their trust in the presidents. They entrust them with the management of the companies because they, they trust them. And the goal of the agreement is to increase the company and grow the company so that they can all share in the benefits of that. If you look at the compendium in section 1.0, the shareholders agree that they will share with the presidents uh, a share of the excess profits as well as a share of the added value. And on, you'll see on the next page uh, the, the breakdown, so that the 60-40 breakdown, and the different ways and the different thresholds uh, that were laid out. So the objective of the Entente des Présidents was really to share the benefits of the of the, the company. So unlike in Quet, there's a, a, a contract with a common goal and uh, profits being shared. There's also the option to buy and the right to first refusal. You can see at tab five on the last line, uh, the, that's the case. So they, they really have this shared goal to maximize profit and value. But the appellants monetized both during the negotiations with Bon and Rayon, uh, negotiated the value of the agreement. In their factum, they always talk about the net price Zap. of the agreement. In paragraph 18, in the case of Mr. Bon, uh, it was paragraph 24, and Mr. 18. And for the other one, uh, paragraph 18. So they're getting 40%. And, but at the same time, they're saying, oh, we have no obligation under this agreement because we've started a negotiation at X point in time. What they did was clear in the, the facts of the case, but they know that they didn't have, they knew that they didn't have the same money that IA had. And they thought that if Réom and, and Bone entered into negotiation, then the, the price would increase, which would increase 
the cost of their right of first refusal. Is it appropriate when there's a causal link between this dishonest behavior and damages? Is Would this apply when there is damage or when there is not damage? Where do you draw the line? So we've identified four criteria. Just give me a second. Where are you at now? So the damage is qualitative. That's clear. They admitted that the four of them would have gotten a better price. So there's a situation where there is harm, there is prejudice, which is qualitative. But it is impossible to quantify it. So what we're saying is that the victim should expect either the, the profit or should expect the duty to be exercised. Now, when it comes to quantifying things, there needs to be a link between the cause and the profit that is being made. In this case, if you look at the price paid by IA, that was based on financial information similar to that which had been used to uh, buy the shares of Bone and Rayon. That is in the ruling of the Superior Court uh, at paragraph 618. So yes, there is harm. It cannot be quantified. But in the analysis that we made, we can establish a link between the profit claimed, which is, of course, a result of the fault. Because we need to limit this proposition, right? It's not just open season. Uh, no, absolutely not. And as I said earlier, the question of restitution is already an exceptional remedy. So I can't simply choose to do it. That, and that's not what we, we did here. Here we didn't have a choice because none of the traditional remedies were available. So if you look at the analysis that is done here, like in buy, there are certain criteria established that we've established based on the criteria that we drew from jurisprudence. So this is the, the, the last resort. Yes, that's, that's sort of what I'm saying. Because if you look at what the appellants say, 
that would lead us to a situation where the victims of a fault who suffered harm would then have no remedy whatsoever because of this issue of uh, fiduciary responsibility. That means that in cases where there was a serious fault or a serious breach of fairness and good faith, there wouldn't be any, any restitution of profits. And that would prevent us from being able to protect uh, contractants in non-fiduciary settings. It would allow people to preserve ill-gotten gains and it would go the fundamental moral principle laid out in Quet. It would also create a legal vacuum. As you say, this is a, a situation where this is the last resort. It's not a remedy that we would choose because we think that's the optimal choice. If we ruled in favor of the appellants, that would be a, a setback in terms of defending good faith. And if you look at the Ull affair, that dealt with good faith in, in contract law. That didn't exist before. So I think it would send a message that people are allowed to preserve ill-gotten gains. The, I'm going to paraphrase uh, Uniselect at tab 13 of the compendium. How can we conceive that a party, in this case the appellants, would accept the Entente des Présidents, recognize its benefits, intercept a manifestation of interest, block communication between IA and the respondents through the veto clause, because there's the Entente des Présidents, but then there's also a confidentiality agreement, a separate agreement that included a veto clause whose stated goal was to block any transaction between IA and the respondents. So that is not a harmless action. Now I'll continue. So it would block any transaction between IA and the respondents through the veto clause. And they admitted that the four of them together would have gotten a higher price. And at the same time, they claim having caused no harm. So this result really cannot be considered if, we, if our goal is fairness. Let's come back briefly to discuss the Contrat des Présidents, or the Entente des Présidents. Why did the appellants agree to share 40% of the profits of the company through this agreement? Well, the respondents wanted to motivate the appellants. The goal was to motivate them to maximize profits, obviously in the goal of an eventual sale by the shareholders. If uh, there was a manifestation of interest to buy the company, everyone should have been informed. That's a question of transparency. And the goal of, of that was to um, 
direct people's behavior to inform Bone and Rayom about how to negotiate the sale and to help the presidents either exercise their right of first refusal or their option to buy, as the case may be. For Bone and Rayom, those were their shares, and so it was their decision whether to enter into negotiation with IA or not. And it also affects the eventual possible renewal of that contract, right? Because the contract was in, in force for seven years. Yes, seven years plus an automatic two-year renewal. And then after that, it could be renewed every two years. Correct. So that link of, of trust would have been renewed along with the contract every two years. And so if there were, was a lack of transparency or if there were lies then the execution of the contract would have been affected as well as people's perspective. Is that right? Absolutely. Now, even before beginning negotiations, the appellants chose to deceive and lie. Their faults were already committed, even, you know, they had already met with IA, they already had this secret agreement, they already had the veto clause. And you can see if you look at the the chronology of the, of the facts that that had a significant impact because Mr. Bone tried to call the president of IA and didn't never got a call back. And the trial judge concluded that it was probably because of the veto clause that he didn't call him back. My colleague Justice Rowe asked a question uh, to your friend opposite, which I thought was very relevant. He said, is it not possible to insist on the fault in the pre-negotiation stage and to see the Entente des Présidents as a sign of the trust that should have reigned during the negotiations? So to identify the source of the responsibility, we could have considered the, the timing there. What do you have to say to that? Answer. If you take into account the contract, then you can't opt to focus on the extra contractual obligations. The obligations existed during the entire chronology of events. Question, is this a, an issue of, of option in 58? It says when there's a contractual recourse and extra contractual recourse, you have to choose one of them. But we're looking at the same issue applied to two different contracts. So is this the principle as in 1458 that apply or something else? Answer, I think it's something else. This is a an ensemble of uh, illicit actions that uh, began in December and continued until the negotiation of the illicit contract. And so uh, the sales would never have occurred if 
the offer had been mentioned. So you can't compartmentalize these issues. It's a continuum and it's impossible to ignore the entente des présidents. Its objective was to maximize the value of the companies with a view for to sell eventually. And so in failing to disclose the offer to Bonne and Riome, the entire chronology of the transactions will be affected. There's a deceit and that could have opened the door to a to voiding the contract and that would have affected the sale to IA. So it's a chronology, a continuum of events that begins with the establishment of the Entente des Présidents and the final sale of the Bonne and Riom transactions. I think unless you have any questions about the duty to inform, I think I can just say quickly that the fault is clear. There is an obligation in the president's contract. The interest from IA should have been disclosed and everything was done to conceal that. The presidents also testified at trial that they had told Mr. Hillon but they were not deemed credible. In civil law, lies are considered deceit. So as well as hiding uh, IIA's interest, they also stopped, they hindered the respondent's ability to sell their shares. They also commit other faults in the continuum. They provide financial information without authorization. They obtain valuations without discussing it. On May 19th, they received a valuation of 35 million. That very same day, the deadline for Mr. Riom's uh, offer expired, and it's clear that he would not have uh, extended that deadline if he had been aware of all the information. So, even in the execution of the purchase offer, there's a problem that will affect their right of first refusal. Their intention is to keep the businesses under their, uh, in their power. Because of their actions, the obligation to inform oneself is eliminated. And so there's, there is a, a duty to inform and they violated it in an extremely obvious fashion. I'll come back to restitution. It represents a method of applying corrective justice to restore profits that were ill-gotten. As I already said, the objective was compensatory in nature. 
and now I'd like to look at the test obviously behavior that deviates from uh, the standard that you would expect from a reasonable person and clearly the behavior of the presidents reflects that the burden of proof was met the prejudice has to be qualitative so either a right or expectation of profits for which the classic remedies are non-existent or don't apply I already mentioned that they were harmed they lost profit 60% between the sales price and the sale price to IA what I was trying to remember about Baxter earlier was that we mustn't have the respondents carry the burden of speculation of what could have happened without the appellants fault we already discussed uh, causation quantification it is clear that the faulty actions continuum of the appellants allowed the appellants to acquire the Riom and bone shares at a lesser price Just like in Baxter when it comes to applying the method of restitution to do otherwise would be to deprive them of full restitution I'll just review my notes I already dealt with the duty of loyalty. Considering the entente des présidents, I concede that we're not dealing with a full uh, manda mandatory case. But it is clear that the presidents should have put their interests below the interests of the general community of shareholders. They should have made choices. That didn't necessarily just go in their interests question loyal to their transactions with the other parties answer the good faith duty must be exercised in a spirit of loyalty within the framework of the Entente des Présidents there's an agreement to share profits in a very generous way 40 to 60 they were given that mandate they were told do this and we'll share the profits and what they also say is that you have the option to purchase and the right of first refusal 
And so as soon as there was any expression of interest, all of the parties to the contract should have been informed. Clearly, they acted against their duties of loyalty and good faith. And I'm not talking about fiduciary loyalty. There's also a duty of honesty. We can't conclude that the actions of the presidents were honest. That's another element that derives from the principle of good faith. If you have no questions for me, I'll let my colleague, Mr. Bélanger, speak. Thank you, Mr. Bélanger. I have a difficult task here because I have to provide a little bit of further information. I'll be brief. Ms. Bochter told you that there's no proof of damages but an answer was already given, the existence of a qualitative uh, damage, the loss of profits because of the transaction, because of the appellant's fault has been admitted. But how do you calculate that? Is there a way of establishing the quantum? She said it would be possible to calculate the number since it, the burden was on the appellants to provide this proof this evidence they provided evidence with a, an expert witness from JVM but there's another approach that exists that says we know the value we could use the most appropriate value which is the value the amount paid by IA because that transaction was based on the same financial information as uh, the basis of the offers made to Mr. Riom and Mr. Bone. The judge dismissed the fair market value approach because there was already enough financial information available to establish what the sales price of these uh, shares could have been without uh, the actions of uh, the appellants. Second point that I wanted to raise my friend argued that there was no more interest on the part of IA to disclose. She pointed to uh, the excerpt from the board note, but IA did not abandon this project. 
all IA said was, I don't want to get involved in a shareholder dispute, but I'm still very interested. I will continue to follow what happens, but I'm going to step aside for the moment because I don't want to get involved in this dispute. But who encouraged this dispute? The judge at trial said that it was the president's who adopted this approach, divide and conquer. So, you can't have the cake and eat it too. This all occurred because of a situation engineered by the appellants. If the shareholders had been aware of IA's interests, they would have made an effort to come together again and come to an agreement with four parties and so you have to be careful about the inferences that could be drawn from the evidence that were not drawn by the trial judge. La façon dont, et la question est... Now this question was asked previously. Is the way we qualify the remedy a problem of semantics? Now we have presidents with this 60-40 profit sharing split to optimize value, and then we have a potential situation that would have led to higher value and better price, but we don't know what that is. So all we're asking, all we're saying is that it was, uh, it was their fault that this information was hidden. And if it hadn't been hidden, we could apply the Entente des Présidents. We could imagine them uh, getting more money with the four of them together. That's what we're saying. We really just are imagining that the Entente des Présidents was applied with the 60-40 split and was applied to the IA transaction, the, which of course that potential transaction had been hidden to the respondents at the time. So the idea is that we would apply the Entente des Présidents, but without lies and deceit, but rather in a context where, you know, what would have happened if we had had the information that we were entitled to that was hidden from us? Now there's a paradox here. When you say, well, Mr. Pépin said that he would have paid less if he was dealing with the shareholders because, you know, the presidents were worth more. But Mr. Ponce said that the four of them together would have gotten a higher price. And the four include the two presidents. So you have to consider this in a context where IA buys the company, the two presidents would come work for the company, and the, the total value would be higher and, the, and uh, the president's share would be higher too. Well, why did the presidents want that? They wanted to sell it at a lower price, but they wanted to get 100% for themselves so that they wouldn't have to, they wanted to get the, the optimal value for, for, their, for them. Something else that was raised, the secret confidentiality agreement. Ms. Bachter said it's not relevant, but that doesn't make sense. Why hide something? Why keep something secret if you have nothing to hide? If you have something to hide, by definition, it's because there was some important information that might have been revealed. So that agreement caused harm to the co-contractants. It meant that the co-contractants were not aware of IA's expression of interest. 
and that it, that could result in a higher valuation. And worse, that secret agreement not only hid that interest, but it told the told I not to conduct any transactions with the shareholders. But the shareholders had the right to speak to IA and negotiate with them. But this essentially put a wall down separating IA from the shareholders. And that interfered with the shareholders' rights and with their legitimate expectation that they could exercise their right to sell their shares without someone putting down an invisible barrier between them and a potential buyer. So yes, there was information that should have been revealed that was not revealed under the secret agreement. Another element that was raised concerns the duty to loyal duty of loyalty. Now, is this needed? Well, it's something that our colleagues made necessary by saying, you know, you need a duty of loyalty in order to have a disgorgement be the applicable remedy. So we looked at that and we decided that if duty of loyalty was required, well, there was a duty of loyalty that was breached. And if not, well, there was nonetheless a breach of the a duty to act in good faith and the duty of honesty. So I think we've covered all our bases, but I, I do accept and the court will decide that if that type of particular remedy is actually applicable in, in, in the various aspects of this case. I do just want to make a comment about this though. If it is true that in negotiations you don't have to subordinate your own interests to the interests of the buyer, you know, I, I can easily accept that. But here we're in a different situation. I think the best way to qualify this is that Mr. Ponce and Riopel should have subordinated their personal interest to the common interest uh, that was described in the Entente des Présidents. So it wasn't a perfect subordination of, of interest. It, it maybe wasn't exactly analogous to fiduciary cases or some of the examples that were cited, but there is a form of subordination of interest that should should happen here, and that would be the subordination of their interest to the agreement. There was loyalty to the agreement, as Justice Kassirer said, uh, that the presidents should have respected. They should have shared the information. And, and you have to remember that that information it, is happening in the context of a potential sale. So there's a, in the case of a transaction, they would have the right to first reply, they would have the option to buy. So the transaction is a condition of the, of the conclusion of the agreement. So if you're hiding the fact that there's a potential sale, you're, you're, you're subverting the potential goals of the agreement, and that's a problem.
I believe I've covered all of the points that I wanted to cover. If there are any questions, I would be happy to answer them. Uh, Mr. Chief Justice, Justices, I would just like to conclude on a small personal note. I would like to thank the court for its attention because uh, this is the last uh, case that I will be arguing in private practice. I am going to be retiring. And so I wanted to tell the court that it has been an honor, privilege, and pleasure to argue before you, and thank you very much. Thank you, and have a happy retirement. Thank you. Ms. Bokter, a reply? I'll be brief. Uh, there are three points I want to make. I think we've at least come to understand that the respondent's position is that disgorgement of profits has to be an exceptional remedy and that it's a last resort. In the case before you, disgorgement of profits is not a last resort, it was the first resort. This is not a case where loss could not have been established. This is a case where there was a choice not to establish loss because the, because the numbers for loss didn't work in the respondent's favor. When my colleague says that the trial judge re rejected fair market value as a proper analysis, that's not true. The trial judge chose the disgorgement of profits analysis because he accepted the respondent's theory of a duty of loyalty. The two go together. And the trial judge's credit, in, it's internally coherent if you accept the duty of loyalty that disgorgement follows. But once the duty of loyalty is no longer there, then disgorgement doesn't follow because it is tied to the nature of that specific relationship, which is the duty to put one's interests ahead of one's own and the accounting of, of rendering of accounts that flows from those relationships. So outside of the context of those relationships, we're going to be struggling here to find a limiting factor. Because if the inspiration is, thou shalt not profit from one's bad acts, which seems to be the inspiration, there's, there's really no fault that that doesn't apply to. There's no reason to limit it. The criteria that my friends have proposed to convince the court that this is going to be narrow are, are arbitrary. The first one's just based on gravity of fault, which is another way of of pleading punitive damages, which the civil code rejects. Essentially, what the remedy here would be is a cause of unjust enrichment without the impoverishment. And even in, just, in unjust enrichment, which is a fundamentally equitable remedy, one gets the lesser of the benefit or the impoverishment. So even that remedy is still fundamentally corrective in nature. It means that there will be cases of something deemed unjust in which uh, a defendant still retains a profit. So we're not asking you here to do an incremental development of the law. We're asking you to adopt a remedy that's been rejected by the codifiers and that is inconsistent with the scheme of the code and the exceptions that are made on a very specific, deliberate, and considered basis to that baseline principle of corrective justice. And when my colleagues say that disgorgement is corrective justice, I have to say that that's just not accurate. And this court said it well in Atlantic Lottery. The academic commentary is, is quite, there's no difference between the common law and the civil law on this. Disgorgement is other than corrective justice. It's a choice that's made in circumstances other than the usual fault causation and damage. And if there's gonna be a choice to extend gain-based remedies outside of the circumstances in which the law recognizes them, 
It's a choice that could be made, but it's a choice that has to be made by the legislature because there have been deliberate choices in the other direction. And so the court's ability to simply develop the law, it's one thing when it's open season and there are no indicators in the code, but here the code specifically sets out the baseline of corrective justice and only admits of exceptions in specific circumstances. Finally, with respect to the entente and this idea of, of les négociations à quatre, I think it's important to keep in mind that négociation à quatre assumes that the shareholder conflict has been set aside and indeed that the, the appellants are around the table and that the value of the transaction is being increased by their presence and what they bring. And I think that it would be, you know, there are management incentive agreements across this country that involve stock options and profit sharing, and I think it would be a stretch to say that the Entente des Présidents obligated négociation à quatre forevermore. It, that, that, that's taking it to, that's more than loyalty to the bargain. That's essentially saying that there's a partnership here, that there's some kind of distinct entity which is a partnership and that all of the parties owe duties to that partnership. And the same type of analogy was rejected in Churchill Falls. Uh, where the court said that, you know, investing resources in a project doesn't show that there's a transfer of ownership or enjoyment of resources or that the resources are placed at each other's disposal. So this, you know, we're, we're essentially trying to analogize quasi-relationships all over the place because this is nothing other than a classic case of civil liability which requires fault, causation, and damage. And Rainbow, which, uh, which Justice... Um, which the Quebec Court of Appeal refers to in Baxter, doesn't stand for the proposition that there's a presumption that profits are equal to loss. It's, and I would say that it would be a wrong reading of Baxter to say that, that that's the <coughs> presumption that that creates. Thank you very much. Thank you, Maître Doctor. Merci aux avocats, avocates. Thank you to all the lawyers. The court will take the case under advisement. Thank you.